Welcome to Supercharge My Practice, a podcast dedicated to helping you build a thriving and fulfilling natural therapies business. Each week, your host, Anil Mustafa, interviews leading practitioners and field experts, sharing proven tactics, inspiring stories, and actionable steps that will help you unlock your potential. Supercharge My Practice is proudly brought to you by My Appointments Practice Management System. Damien, welcome to the Supercharge My Practice podcast. Wonderful to have you here. Thank you, Anil. Great to see you again. It's been such a long time since we caught up, and it's just so nice to see you and to hear what you've been doing off, you know, off the recording, of course. But uh, you know, it's so so awesome, so awesome. You're doing such a great job. Well done. Thank you. Likewise. So, Damien, let's find out about you. You're a nutritionist. You're a naturopath. You're a chiropractor. You're a podcaster, an international speaker, and you're the vice president of the Australian Chiropractic Association. Very busy person, totally relate to that. But I want to ta- I want you to take us back to your beginnings, not from the time when you're in a diaper. I'm sure you got lots of fun <laughs> with us there as well. But yeah. you're battling chronic fatigue. You failed your accounting course. You're probably feeling like life's got a little bit of a grudge against you. How did you get from there to becoming a practitioner? I also know that you were on a host of a TV show uh, and running a successful practice. Mm, oh gosh wow all right so how long have we got Anil? Uh, i'll try to keep it interesting essentially what happened was i was studying accounting um at, at deakin university pretty much only because i didn't apply myself at high school so i went to a high school that was brand new um and there was no other you know grades ahead of us so we had nothing to kind of look to so we had no kind of mentoring or leadership so i didn't have anything to aim for um, and I grew up in an area that was relatively poor at the time, and we were, you know, we weren't we weren't destitute, but we were definitely, you know, we were receiving bread donations from the Saint Vincent de Paul every Sunday, you know. So we were doing we were doing it tough. Um, and so my influences around me were, you know, varied, but they were all very modest kind of jobs and incomes. And so for me, that's kind of what I thought I was going to end up doing. So when I got into accounting, I was really kind of just distracted. I didn't really know why I was doing it. I didn't really want to do it. I was told by my science teacher in year 10 that I wasn't smart enough to study science. So, you know, perhaps go down the humanities route. So I then, you know, found myself doing this accounting course in Geelong and partied hard, had a great time, loved life, ate bad food. You know, I had the little sticker on your car that gave you the free Coke or the free chips when you went through Macca's. Um, I had a I had a rolling account with the local milk bar because I'd go to the milk bar and buy um, strawberry big M's and strawberry donuts, um, and I didn't have the cash. So the the milk bar person would put it on account, and I'd finalise an account at the end of the week just with you know big M's and donuts. And so I was heading down a path of destruction. So eventually I was introduced to a naturopath because my mum said, Damien, this is ridiculous. You've got to go see this naturopath. And I've been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And um, and this naturopath was David Fitz. Um, and at the time he was the president of or the principal of the Australian College of Natural Medicine as it was back in um, 1990, you know, early 90s. Let's just say early 90s. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so David and Honey Pommel Bull, they were the president or the principal and vice principal of the college. And I, I got better fast and I, I really fell in love then with natural medicine and 
I said to him, do you reckon I could be a naturopath? He said, oh, I don't know, judging by your education, maybe not, but why don't you give it a go? <laughs> so I uh, I applied to get in and uh, sat my interview and, he, and I got in and um, and and I fell in love. I fell in love with everything to do with natural medicine. In fact, I was an evangelist. I, you know, when you meet people and have just realized how powerful diet is and they've just realized how powerful herbs and vitamins are and they just shout it from the rooftops, I was one of them. I was a walking A-frame. And so I would tell people, you got to go see a naturopath, you got to go see a homeopath, all that sort of stuff. And so my, I had zero understanding of the industry. And all of a sudden, I'm studying something because I knew that I was going to be able to help people, but I didn't know that it was fringe. And I didn't know that it was considered kooky, wacky, or crazy. And I didn't know that I was being seen by my existing peers as becoming teaching learning how to be a witch doctor and i was uh, and i was copying all of this kind of these little jives and you know punches to the ribs about what i'd chosen to do um and that i was you know becoming a hippie and all and i didn't realize that there was kind of a bit of venom in all of that so bit by bit that kind of eroded like the way i felt about the course that i was studying albeit i got out and i you know graduated with honors in herbal medicine and and I'd done a really good job, like, I, and I and I and I knew that because I'd done a good job, I would be a good practitioner. I just didn't know where I would go, but because of my accounting brain, I was like, where could I go where there's no other naturopaths around? And then I bumped into this lady who was a pharmacist, and she was buying a TV from me. I was working at Meyer, and she said, "I'm looking for a naturopath um, to come and work in my." in my pharmacy. And I was like, oh, well, where's your pharmacy? She said, Tarolgan. I said, okay, cool. Are there any naturopaths around there? She said, there's one other one. And I said, okay, cool. So I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and then I, I went and worked for her in this pharmacy and I set up a naturopathic practice in this pharmacy and I stayed there for a few years, but found myself really ah, disenfranchised by people's um, willingness to comply to recommendations. So people wanted to get well, but they were used to taking drugs. And mm. so they didn't want to change their diet. And they wanted things that were way more powerful than herbs and vitamins, you know, and lifestyle change really fast. And so I realized that I was in the wrong environment. I didn't want to be in a pharmacy anymore. Started out my own practice and became really great friends with some chiropractors. Um, and and then I learned about chiropractic. I always thought the chiropractic was just, you know, if you hurt your hurt your neck or you had back pain or whatever, then you'd go there um and and get fixed anyway um one day i was chatting with di di coleman and she said damo why don't you become a chiropractor i said do you reckon i could be a chiropractor she goes yeah yeah you could be a chiropractor you'd be great at it it's only five years worth of study and you know you can go and do that so i was like all right so anyway i applied to become a chiropractor and um and then i got into the course (laughs) um and i had to move to melbourne and i'd literally just had a newborn baby jackson our our little boy at the time um and he was one and a bit and we moved from tarogan um back into melbourne and lived in mill park not middle park mill park um and um and then studied chiropractic and then realized that if I was paying $27,500 per year for my education, I wanted A-grade education. So I, I I just didn't love the course that I was being taught. So I decided to move to New Zealand and studied the course in New Zealand, finished the course over there. Um, and while I was there, I, um, I got this TV show. So if you think about that whole journey, that whole process, every little step in between that got me to the next step was a willingness to change and shift 
and to say yes. And because it was, I was always looking to see what was possible. And it was having an eyes wide open kind of philosophy that meant that I was able to see what other people were doing. And if I liked it, I could go and either emulate it, piggyback off their success or learn from them so that I could, you know, do a better job. And it was really about having eyes wide open and saying yes. Fantastic. And so uh, you've su- successfully graduated from your chiropractic course. If I'm not mistaken, you went and worked with uh, Simon Floriani yep. for a little while. I did. And then from there you moved into opening up your own practice. Is that correct? Yeah, goodness gracious. You've done some research. And now, yeah, I worked with Simon <laughs> for three and a bit years. And during that time I started at a musical company um, that was that was called WBC at the time. And then that fell into bad Bad times, tough times. So, you know, we had a falling out with the business partners. And so I ended up, you know, walking away from that business and starting Forage. And so I had Forage for eight years. But in that time when I left Simon's and I kind of left the chiropractic profession, I wasn't going to work as a chiropractor anymore. I was a bit burned out. Only after three years or three and a half years, I just wasn't. And maybe it was just my interactions at the time that led to me feeling that way. But um, I then heard that this practice was up for sale in Sandringham. And so um, this great friend of mine, Michelle, she said, Damo, why don't you go and speak to Bloomy and buy his practice? So I went down to see Bloomy and he told me what it was and how much it was going to be. And I said, all right, I'll buy it. So I bought it, another yes, and then I started Forage literally within the space of, I don't know, six or eight weeks of each other. I bought a new, pra- I bought a practice and then started a whole new Muesli brand. Um, which required a lot of work. And so I then um, set about trying to assemble teams to assist me with forage and um, assemble a team to assist me with um, with Vita, with, with the chiropractic practice. But also we'd also started Lawrence Tam, Brad Hill and I had started the Wellness Couch. So we had the podcast network. And so we'd started all of that at, all at the same time. So in 2011, I had all of this stuff that was going um, and, and just – it was pretty hectic. It was really busy. And my wife hardly saw me and Jackson hardly saw me. And it was it was kind of uh it was it was a pressing time. Yeah, I think I can certainly relate to being one of those people that can't say no to new opportunities when they sound exciting. So yeah, you yeah. over this new clinic. Uh it had been, I'm assuming it was an established clinic that had been going for quite a while. But what are the pivotal lessons that you learned during those early days of taking on this business and how do you think it's contributed to your success today? Uh, it's that's a great question, Neil, because um, one of the things that Michael said to me, Bloomy said to me, was don't change it too much when you buy it. You know, mm-hmm. just just stick it out and stay with the same format for a bit of time before you start to make some changes. And that was really sage advice. Um, and so it's different when you buy a practice, you're buying the goodwill, right? So you obviously buy tables and computers and all the stuff that's in there, you know, sh- the shadows and fixtures and stuff. But the goodwill is the most important bit, and the goodwill is built on the relationship of the practitioner, but also of the style of practice that's been delivered. And so, I'd come from a practice in Middle Park that was very um, hands-on manual, and I bought a practice that was very light touch and instrument based. Um, and I didn't get my head around that, you know. So, my initial uh, period at Vita was one of almost um, self-destruction. So I brought a model of chiropractic into a practice that wasn't used to that model, mm-hmm. um, and I very quickly saw the patient numbers decline, and it was quite frightening to see that happen. You know, so I was like, "Oh my gosh, what am I doing?" So I had to kind of, you know, 
reassess how I was approaching um, the practice and what I was going to do. And I had all these staff and I had a practice manager and all these overheads plus forage was getting going and all that was happening. And the main thing that I had to do was just kind of pull back a little bit and go back to what the original practice kind of design was. Like how did that work and and re-implement that and then, you know, kind of navigate small little changes to enable it to now be, be the practice that I run now. So the practice is nearly five times the size of what it was when I bought it, um, you know, back then, now. And um, and that's only because I heard a speaker, John D. Martini, say once, and I interviewed him on 100 Not Out, he said, small incremental changes are palatable by humans. So a 5 to 10% shift, we don't really notice, but a... 15 or 20 or 25 percent shift we really feel and so his whole thing was like if you need to make changes or you need to save for example just do small little bits at a time rather than actually doing you know large amounts and so um i then said about changing the way in which i use language it's very very specific with words i think words are amazing so um if you don't use words well they can be used against you so i try to use words really well and then um I re rewrote our practice procedure manual um, and went through every single step. So when somebody walks through the front door all the way to when they're greeted in the reception space, to the language that the chiropractic assistants use all the way through to the adjusting space and into the initial consultation room. Um, and then all the words that we use and the process that we use to do all of our testing to understand how it is that we're going to care for these people. All of that is not scripted, but it's well understood as to, the reason why we use certain words um, so that people can go, oh, I get it. I get it. I understand. So it's very word, deliberate, de- deliberately chosen words um, to help with the growth of the practice. I think that is so pivotal in any practice to have to map out your patient's journey. Mm. Uh, so I run a lot of free webinars and that's one of the things that I tell practitioners that you have to be able to uh, give your clients some degree of um, what to expect. And so when you've mapped out your journey, your clients are so much more confident in your care and it really results in a difference in your rebooking rates and the confidence that the clients actually feel towards you. So I think that's absolutely vital. Now, I don't imagine you do a lot of marketing for yourself. You're a busy practitioner. I'm sure you probably just grow through referrals, which is the best way to build a practice. But I know you've got another chiropractor, you've got a massage therapist and a nutritionist, I believe, in your practice as well. So yeah. talk to me about what are the maybe the top five strategies that you, you've used in the past and present uh, to help bring new patients into your practice. Yeah. Uh, the the most powerful thing that we've used um, is word of mouth, for sure, um, and the ability to ask patients um, that are already happy with your care if they know of anybody else that would benefit from the care that we provide. So that's a really powerful um, question that you can ask your patients. Um, you know, who, when they're jumping up and down for joy because you've helped them um, and say, you know, do you know anybody else that I could help? Um, and then more often than not, you'll get a referral. I've got a couple of referrals this morning from patients just because I asked that question the other day. So, um, you know, that that's a really great way to go. But probably um, from an external marketing perspective, seminars have been the most um impactful way of getting immediate growth so if we put on a seminar um, we'd either get a speaker in or i would do a presentation myself so i've always i've run seminars called the power of food which is you know on the on the face of it 
um, appears to be totally separate to chiropractic. Um, and it is, but there's a philosophy of chiropractic that's interwoven into the um, choice of food and the way in which you would, you know, prepare a meal and and what sorts of foods you would buy to assemble a salad with. You know, it's all based on a philosophy of of energy and getting energy from your food. So I run that event, and we would have 150, maybe 200 people come to those events. Oh, um, our patients would bring friends and family along to those events, and we put on some food, and then I'd talk for a couple of hours, and then we'd have a, a special offer for people to come in to the practice for initial consultations, which is available at all times for everybody, but we make it available on the night so that people become aware of it. Um, and then we do the same thing with another seminar called Crack Your Stress Code. But then we've also had like themed events. So we've had breathing events. Where we've had breath, you know, breathing teachers come along and, and teach us breathing techniques. Um, we've had um, yoga and we've had, you know, people, you know, come in to, see, to teach yoga and, and do yoga um, education. And then one of the great things that we did was have Andrea Huddleston come over from Western Australia to teach um fertility for women um, and female reproductive health. And so we had this female reproductive health event workshop um, called Secret, Secret Women's Business, which amazingly some men took exception to. I'm like, well, what do you want to learn that stuff for? <laughs> you know, It is Secret Women's Business. I don't want to know about it. I'm a, and I'm a practitioner. So um, Andrea would come over and we'd have 200 people at those events and then they're a great feed forward into the practice. Um, and because... Um, w- when you bring in a speaker and you host a speaker, um, that's an endorsement of the value of the practice for you by somebody else. And so having third-party endorsements are really valuable thing. So we did that. Um, obviously, doing tastings for forage was really useful, and I still use mueslis and have different tastings in my practice because it's something else that brings value um, into the practice and so people would often say oh where do you get that music from oh i go down to vita and i get it from vita and so they enter vita from that perspective so it opens up for more conversations but i don't do facebook advertising i don't do um, instagram or tiktok or any of that sort of stuff in terms of advertising we do marketing on those things where we would um, give tips and useful advice um, but we don't show adjustments on that and we don't um, do any special offers using that sort of medium um, primarily for the reason that we don't want to cheapen or discount what it is that we do um, we believe in a very professional approach to you know marketing and advertising and and we don't feel like discounting um, publicly is a really good thing to do mm, excellent so in terms of the events that you're hosting do you do those often and do you have a separate space for them and how on earth do you manage to get that many people along to these events because that is truly incredible yeah uh yeah we usually hire out um a big venue um and so and we market two months out so we we have a big venue uh, we make it a big deal every single patient in the practice knows um we invite them to come along um and we will usually, with our patients, gift them a ticket and ask them if they want to bring somebody else along. Um, so there's a price on it. We'll advertise that on Facebook and Instagram um, and then amongst the local community, so little posters in the shops. Um, 
And we ask other practices around the area to refer people, you know, to those events. So it might be the local physio or the local massage therapist or local naturopath or health food store. And we've got a constant referral base with these people through the year. So we're always referring into those businesses. Not that we get many referrals back, mind you, but they are happy to put our signs up in their practices and and I think that's a really important thing to understand is that just because you refer someone into a practice, you don't need to expect referral from that practice. It's nice to get referrals from that practice. But if you refer someone to another person's practice, it's because you think that your patient will benefit from it, not because you think you're going to benefit from the referral. And I think that's really important because I was out for a walk this morning with a mate and he was talking about um, a, a physio that refers in to see him. And I said, oh, I've got a physio that I refer heaps to, but they never refer to me. She, he, he said, well, that, that kind of sucks. I said, well, you know, obviously they don't understand what it is that I do. And eventually maybe they will, but um, my patients have had good results from them. So it's just a different mindset about it. Even having them just promoting your events is a huge win. I think they've obviously got their own databases. So that in itself is enough of a win. Uh, yeah. for you to continue referring on to them. All yeah. right, so let's talk about retaining patients because this is the key to practice success. It's very difficult to get a new client through the door uh, yeah. when you have to get out there and fully market it, especially if you're running Facebook ads and all that sort of stuff. But it is yeah. so easy to retain clients. But unfortunately, practitioners are not taught the basics of uh, client retention in school. They're not taught the basics of anything when it comes to business, really. But for me, the most important thing for any practitioner to know is client retention. So yeah. talk to me about some of the strategies that you use in your clinic to retain your clients uh, and keep them engaged in returning into your services. So you, you're spot on, Anil. Like it's, it is a difficult thing to find new patients um, and you're far better off having an exceptional experience for your existing patients in your practice um, so that they never want to leave. They don't want to go because they... They love the service you provide. They love the environment that you created and they tell everybody else about it. So I go in with that kind of mindset, you know, first up. And I always expect that people will learn the value of what it is that I do over time. So when I first graduated as a naturopath, I was so excited and I wanted to vomit all of the information that I knew <clears throat> about the human body all over my patients. And so I wanted to tell them how the liver was working and what a P450 enzyme pathway was and, you know, that every single cell within the body required, you know, water for, you know, for its activity and every action and reaction in the body required water. And, and I wanted to teach them what I already knew, but they only wanted to come to see me for my, my care. Uh, and so I had to learn to dissociate my knowledge from their care in other words i didn't need to educate them about everything i knew they needed to trust that i knew enough that could help them out and and so that was that's a really important thing to remember that you don't want to teach your patients everything you know because they're already busy in their life and they're already happy with what life choices they've made they're not coming to you to learn how to be a naturopath or a herbalist or a chiropractor they're coming to you for the care that you can offer and provide that's really important to understand because that should then shorten your consultation time. There's two budgets that your patients are going to come in, in with um, in mind. Time is a budget and the other budget they're going to come in with is finance, resource. Um, if your initial consultation is enormous in terms of its price, you burn a hole in that budget pretty quickly. Um, and then if you sell or 
move a lot of supplements in your practice, um, then that burns another level of hole in the patient's pocket. Um, and if your consultations are too long, that burns a hole in their time allocation to be able to see that it's easy enough to fit you in to their busy life. So you're more likely to get cancellations and reschedules if you run late or you take a long time in your appointments than if your appointments are well scheduled and they don't take a long time um, so that people can actually easily budget it in. So if so, if an appointment takes 15, 20 or 30 minutes, that's way better than 45 or one hour or an hour and a half. And so you, your longer appointments will burn people out and they're less likely to want to return. And they perceive those longer appointments as being way more expensive. From a value perspective, if someone's paying you $240 for an hour consultation, for example, and that could be cheap for some people, it might be expensive for other people. Um, if they're paying $240 for the hour, for they might think, gosh, I haven't got the time and I can't afford $240 at the moment, I'm going to cancel that appointment. But if they're paying $80 for a 15-minute appointment, it's the same amount of money per hour, but they can afford the time and the $240 is it feels way more affordable. In fact, it's way more because if it was $60, um, then that'd be equal. But at $80, you're making more. It's But you, do you know, understand what I'm talking about? So it's a smaller hit to the pocket, um, but it's a better use of their time. So um, we have smaller, more frequent and regular appointments for a number of reasons. One, it, it works to the finance budget, but it also works to the um, education and time budget. So I can educate my patients about what it is that's happening, what's going to happen um, over a longer period of time uh, because they're spending short little bursts with me and I get to teach them little bits a lot, so more frequently, as opposed to try and teach them everything I know in one or two consultations, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So the model around that is to is to coach your patients into better health um, so that they not only get an amazing result, but they feel very comfortable and it doesn't cost them an arm and a leg to be able to do it. Mm. I actually found that myself quite challenging when I was in practice for my first few years as my therapist because I was one of those practitioners that felt like patients needed to know everything. You know, this is what I'm doing, this is why I'm doing it, and educated yeah. them on this is what a trigger point is, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And then one gentleman one day just turned around to me and he said, I really don't care. I just want you to fix me. Yeah. So I had to like take this step backwards yeah. and going, oh, okay. He was really polite about it, mind you. But yeah. he's like, you know, I know you know what you're doing. I've been referred by so many people to see you. You're good at what you do. Just fix me. And it really, it was a really bit of a shock to learn because the, most of the patients enjoyed that feedback. But that said, when I've seen naturopaths and I've had, you know, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia since I'm 15, it's something wow. I'm still battling t- today that I haven't been able to get on top of. Wow. So I've seen quite a few different practitioners in my time. And one thing I found was that the practitioners that were talking to me more about the technical side of things, you know, the educational standpoint, the more overwhelmed and the more I felt like I needed to retreat back. So for a lot of practitioners, part of the reason is ego. It's like telling your patients more about the science and, you know, what behind what you're doing because you want them to trust and know that you're the expert and your information is qualified. But in most cases, or certainly in my experience as a business owner, is that the practitioners in my practice that did the best 
were those that had the best patient care, not the most knowledgeable practitioners. Yes. So it's something that I found consistently is that when you're dealing with the patient on more of an emotional, more of a, a, a bonding type of relationship where you're interested in them and them getting better, not necessarily on educating them, I think it just forms such a stronger bond and that patient then is more likely to return back for ongoing care compared to the practitioner that's just bombarded them with so much information. So I think that's a really valuable lesson. So thanks for bringing that up. And you did mention referrals. You do ask for referrals, which I think is a bit of an elephant in the room scenario for a lot of practitioners because they don't want to ask patients for referrals because they feel desperate. They don't want the patients to feel that they need referrals uh, to build their business. Mm. Uh, I don't agree with that. Uh, philosophy, but I do understand it because that was me in the early days and not wanting to ask patients to refer on. So how do you approach this subject with your clients? What kind of wording do you use to encourage them to bring uh, to refer other patients to your clinic? Uh, well, the, it's we have a sign at the front of our practice on the reception counter that says, um, Thank you. Well, actually, as people walk in through the front door, the first thing they see is referrals for the month. Thank you so much for your referrals. And it has the name of the people that have referred to us. So immediately people know that it's okay to refer to us. Um, and then secondly, on, on the reception counter, there's a little sign that says the greatest way that you could show your appreciation is to refer your family and friends to us. Mm-hmm. So there's little subtle um, notes. Um, we also break up our appointment structures. So you have an initial consultation, then you have a report of findings, and then you have a series of appointments, and then you have a review. And so in the review is a perfect opportunity to ask people. It reviews every six weeks. So you're asking people how they're going with their care, um, what are they noticing with their body, um, and then there's a perfect opportunity there to be able to ask the question, who else do you know might benefit from what it is that I do? Um, and because all the way around the practice, we've got little points of information and education. If somebody said, oh, my husband's got headaches or um, my little boy's, you know, got X, Y, Z going on, I can easily give them a brochure um, about how chiropractic might help with that or how nutrition could help with that. And I'm also very comfortable in knowing what it is that I want to do. So a lot of people ask me, can I have a nutrition appointment with you? And I go, look, you can, but it's not what I do these days. So I can refer you in to see Laura because she's a great nutritionist and she, she's unreal. So why don't I arrange an appointment time with her? And they're like, are you sure? And I say, yeah, yeah. She with the same health philosophy, go to see her. And from a massage perspective, having massage therapists in the practice just means that you can, you know, easily and safely refer people into those people. And that means that referrals inside your practice are way safer than referrals outside of your practice. So as a result of referring inside your practice, the practitioners that are inside your practice will refer also into your practice. And so there's that feed forward kind of thing. Um, It's still incumbent upon you to do a great job as a practitioner. So yeah, you can get all these new referrals, but you won't get growth unless you're a great practitioner or good enough to help people get results. Um, Or if you're triaging um, care, then you've got a network of practitioners that are nearby that you could easily uh, refer to because then you're seen to be a trusted advisor. So um, somebody comes to see you, they've got a problem, you say, look, let's give it a go. If that doesn't work, let me refer you to somebody else that can help you. Um, 
it's more likely that they're going to stick around and refer to you because you've been open and honest than if you say, yep, we can fix that, give me three weeks and it's all going to be good, you know. Mm. So it's all about being honest and open with your patients too. Yeah, actually, I had a very interesting experience with that. I had a a doctor who'd referred a patient to see me Mm. and the reason for the referral was that she had neck and shoulder pain referring down into her arm. Oh, wow. The reason why she had that pain was because she could not lie down on a bed without stopping breathing and they had for the ambulance three times a week for this woman who'd stopped breathing because she couldn't lie down. So oh the reason gosh. she felt the neck and shoulder pain was because she was seated in a chair mm-hmm. and she kept falling asleep in a chair. <laughs> so she came to see me for that reason. I gave her a treatment. I went through and understood her history. She got phenomenal results from that one treatment. And I said to her, I need to send you to my chiropractor. It was Ian Rossborough. It's a genius oh, yeah. chiropractor. Yeah. He walked up the road. So um, I sent the patient to the chiropractor and she said, but why don't you want to see me? And I said, I'm happy to see you. No problem. You can come in any time. But your bigger problem here is the fact that you can't sleep lying down. And if you're having to call an ambulance three times a week, that is a huge deal. So let's start with getting that addressed for you. And then we'll deal with the secondary stuff. She went to see Ian. One adjustment later, this woman was able to sleep in her bed without needing to call an ambulance, which is just absolutely phenomenal and testament to chiropractic is. I wrote a letter to the doctor thanking for a referral, explained that I'd sent over to the the patient to the chiropractor, never got a referral back from this doctor, mind you, because he was so anti-chiropractic. But I'm like, this woman no longer needs to call an ambulance and all you're worried about is the fact that she was sent to a chiropractor. But anyway, that's a separate story. But this oh woman God. walked in about a week later and she said to me, I cannot thank you enough. You've changed my life. She yeah. said, you could have kept me here and dealt with the pain that you that I had at the time, but instead you did the right thing by me and sent me to the person who could fix me. And yeah. you honestly, you've changed my life. And from that moment, that woman referred so many patients to my clinic, not to the Cairo. She yeah. referred them to me because yeah. there was that trust there. There was that you knew that, that I was going to do the right thing by those patients. So yeah. Yeah, pretty phenomenal story. But I think it's also something else that I want to highlight to our practitioners listening is that when we help our patients, they want to do something to help us back. So the best way that they can help you is to refer on and letting them know that our patients feel good about the fact that they've done something to help us. So within the My Appointments platform we've built, we've built all these automations around client referrals and some other um, things as well. So our system automatically sends Um, referral thank yous and part of the messaging is thank you for helping my business to grow so when your clients see that they understand that this is what they're doing for you and I think patients love being able to help us out so when we take that perspective uh, it takes the desperation out of it that a lot of practitioners feel in asking for referrals so that's my little experience so let's move back to you key elements that have contributed to the success of your business the longevity of your business so what is it that's helped you be successful for such a long time? I think what's really important is to set your income. Um, And because most businesses fail because they don't have enough money. Uh, And so you've got to set your income that's appropriate um, and do that with your accountant. So work out how much money you can actually take from your business rather than taking all of it and then trying to struggle to pay your tax bills or struggle to pay your superannuation or struggle to pay your registration or your insurances or whatever. Um, work out what your income is going to be. And then at the end of the year, if there's any money left over, then you've got a dividend that you can pay yourself. And I think financial success in a, in a practice is directly determined by your fiscal, your financial management. 
So if you're a sole trader and you think that because someone pays you, I don't know, 100 bucks, that that whole 100 bucks is yours, then you're really mistaken because half of that at least will be going to running your practice, um, which would be expenses, marketing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, another portion of that's going to be um, tax. So let's say it's 30% of that's going to be tax. So you're now left with $35. Um, and then um, some of that's going to be superannuation. So you're going to take off another, you know, 11th of that, and that goes to your superannuation. So you're now left with 32, 31.50. Um, and so then if you think about all of that, um, there's you probably really only should be taking about $25 because you've got to leave some money in the in the business. So for that 100 you probably only can get a quarter of that $100 into your bank account. But if you continue to spend all of what it is that you bring in, you're going to find yourself in some serious financial difficulty because mm-hmm. you're 75% behind the eight ball already. Mm-hmm. So I'd highly encourage people to be really careful with their money um, and spend appropriately. Spending more money on Facebook advertising doesn't generate more quality clients. It might get more bums on seats um, and bring people in, but you're better off putting money into networking. So taking other practitioners out for lunch or, um, you know, running running an event, you know. So instead of spending $1,000 on Facebook, spend $1,000 on room hire and put on an event for your existing patients or your, or your friends or the club that you're at, you know, whether it's a netball club or a hockey club or a football club, whatever it's going to be, or a golf club in my case, put on an event for the members um, to do that. So for me, it's been about the success of the practices come around proper training of our staff which is really important. Uh, we have um, a total of um, five support staff and then um, five practitioners. So it's a busy space, but we're all deliberate with how, the way we, we speak and use words, um, and we're all across the, the reason why um, we manage the, the patient flow the way that we do, and, and we educate each other about what it is that we do as well. So make sure the practice is educated, but be financially savvy. That's really important. Mm, great advice. Have you faced any significant challenges in your business? And if so, how did you overcome them? Yeah, the most significant thing um, comes from associates, to be honest with you. So you bring somebody on and you know, they're employed either as um, an employee or they're employed as, uh, or not employed, maybe they work with you as a subcontractor. These days, the subcontractor arrangements are such that pretty much they're employees. So you might as well just employ them properly and then safeguard your practice. But um, when when an associate or somebody who works for you decides that they no longer can benefit from your practice and then they decide to leave your practice and open up just down the road um, without telling you, that's hugely um, distressing. Um, And that's happened. That happened once to me that was disastrous, like really emotionally um, crippling. Um, And that, took me a long time to get over um and so as a result of that it was because i didn't have firm contracts in place and i didn't have um safeguards in place and i'd kind of got too busy doing other things so i took my eyes off you know how the practice was actually running so i got distracted so um that that cost me probably 60 percent of the value of my practice at the time mm. um and so i was severely hamstrung um i really 
you know, struggled financially to keep the practice alive and um, and to pay the staff and to stay on top of everything and to continue to run forage and um, and all of that. So it was very very tricky uh, situation. So when a, when an associate leaves and they do it wrong, they do it inappropriately, um, uneth- unethically. Then that's that's hard. That's really hard. And, and I had that. And then I've had situations where staff haven't performed and I've kept them on for too long. So instead of actually letting them go, um, because I'm, I'm a nice person, I don't like to let people go. Um, and that can come back and bite you on the foot. Um, and so I, I've i let people stay for too long in the practice and that's cost the, the practice. And you see the impact of that usually six months down the track from when it first started. So as your practice is declining, it's whatever you did six months ago that's causing that decline. Um, and vice versa, like if you see a practice growing, it's from whatever you did six months ago that's causing your practice to grow. So try to measure in long levers as opposed to measure what you did last week um, that's going to be of benefit. It's really the stuff you've been doing for the last six months that's going to be beneficial. Mm, yeah, right. I can totally relate to all of those scenarios, actually. Uh, mm. So what do you think are the common mistakes that practice owners make and do you have any advice? Yeah, um, I, I think that a lot of practice owners think that, it, it, look, there's two different ways of looking at this. So if you're a practice owner and you're a sole trader, um, I think the income thing is really important. Um, and I also think that it's really important to be hugely available for your patients seven days a week, 24 hours a day when you first start out. You want to be available because every single person that comes through that door um, wants to see you for what you've got to offer. And they also, if we talk about it from a commercial perspective, they also provide the ability to grow your practice. So you want to be available at all times. So that, regardless if you're a sole trader or if you're a practice owner, when you first start a practice, we first start out, you've got to be available 24-7, um, 365 days. you just got to be available. And then become a specialist in your craft down the track when you've got a base. So don't be a specialist to start with. So be a generalist to start with. I think that's really important um, because if you become a specialist too early and you don't have referral networks and you don't have a base of income, then you you will find it very, very difficult to to stay afloat, to stay alive. Mm. So I would um, I would say be general first and specialise later when you find out what it is that you truly love doing in your practice. So if you love pregnancy, um, or you love pediatrics, then go into that once you've got a base. Don't go into it straight away because you narrow your marketplace significantly if you do that. You know, from a marketing perspective, if you want to market to a particular audience, then when you're writing all of your marketing, consider who it is that you're writing to. So if you love looking after pregnant women, then write as if you're writing to a pregnant person, you know, so that you're bringing those people into your practice through the words that you use in your marketing. Um, but still see everybody, like make sure you're seeing everybody. Um, if you're running a company and you're bringing people on to work inside your company, the biggest mistake I think that practitioners make or the owners or principals make is that they bring people into the practice seeing them as a revenue stream. Mm. And if you see people as a revenue stream, they're only ever going to be um, temporary. Um, if you see people in your practice, you know, colleagues in your practice as business partners or as colleagues or as associates that you can work together, they work with you, not for you, then you're more likely to have them collaborate and cooperate to be with you for a longer period of time. And that's going to help ensure practice success as well. 
Yeah, excellent. So two more questions for you, Damien. I want to talk about work-life balance. Like me, you're an overcommitter. <laughs> you're mm-hmm. a serial overcommitter. Uh, you're a father, you're a husband, you're a business owner, podcaster, speaker. You're on the the as the vice president of the Australian Chiropractic Association, as we mentioned er- earlier. But yeah. how do you manage to stay sane? How do you manage to create a work-life balance that still has time for your wife and your and your son as well and, and keep a, a float of your business and everything else that you're doing? Got to be really deliberate with this, Anil, because you if you if you don't carve out time, then you find yourself taking more on. So um, my Wednesdays, uh, my Wednesday mornings are golf. It's always golf. Um, so it breaks up my week. Um, and then if I have an opportunity on a Monday, I'll play golf. But if somebody like you, Anil, says to me, Damo, can you do a podcast on a Monday? It's a yes for me. You know, so like I will not play golf on a Monday. Um, because I've got a meeting or a, a patient might call me and say, can I see you on a Monday morning? I'll like, yep, yeah, no worries. I'll never say no um, to doing something on a Monday morning. I work on Monday afternoon. I work all day Tuesday. I play golf on a Wednesday and then I record my own podcast on a Wednesday afternoon. I've done radio. I do. I did radio this morning, um, Monday morning and Friday morning. I do that before um, anyone's really awake. So I've already done the radio. Then I work again on Thursday in the practice, and then I play golf again on a Friday um, mid-morning. Um, and if I'm lucky, I'll play golf again one more time on the weekend. Um, but what I try to do is make sure that I play golf during, you know, Amber's work hours. So I don't want to um, use up our recreation time together um, by me playing golf. So for us to hang out and see our friends and to do all those sorts of things, it's better for me to be able to spend time with, Amber, who's working in a corporate job, um, in the times that she's around and available, rather than for me to play golf in those times. So, um, and the same for seeing Jackson. So, if I've got an opportunity to go and see Jackson, he's now living in Singapore. If I have an opportunity to go and see him, um, I'll carve out time to have an opportunity to go and see Jack or fly him back into Australia or whatever, um, because that's really important to me. Family um, and family values are so important. But from a recreation perspective, um, I I find it really important to carve out time for me to do yoga, Pilates. I do Pilates on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings before work. I do yoga on the other mornings and I play golf on a Wednesday and Friday and Saturday or Sunday. Wow, sounds very busy. I feel like I need to have a nap after listening. To <laughs> you just got to carve it out. Just got to carve it out. I suppose that's what it is. And then don't don't be flexible with what's really important, you know, so – it's really important for me to spend time with the family. It's really important for me to play golf. And so if I'm flexible on those two things, then I'm in trouble. So I'm rigid on the days that I'm working because I have an appointment book. So that's never going to change. Um, and then the other, you know, blocks of time that I've got, I can have flexibility around that um, to, to get everything else done. But I'm also not afraid to work till late in the afternoon. I'm not working nine to five. Mm. So, I'll, you know, I'll work till late. Mm, love that. So my last question that I ask every single one of my podcast guests, if you were to give just one piece of advice to natural healthcare practitioners aiming to build a successful and fulfilling business, what would it be? Um, See this as a full-time career, not as a part-time job. Fantastic. Love it. So many of our practitioners are in this space part-time. Uh, you give them lots of gold nuggets to take in and hopefully bring it to a full-time practice. So, Damien, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Anil. Great to see you again. You too. Bye. 
Thank you for tuning in today and I look forward to having you join me in the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date with the latest releases and for more helpful tips, look for me on Instagram under the handle supercharged my practice. This podcast is proudly sponsored by my appointments.